a picture that I'm going to put up right over the top of this that was taken, and I do not know who the photographer is. As a matter of fact, I sent you a copy of it because you said you'd never seen it before. It's a low-down picture of you as you're launching on that last race. And looking at that picture, and everybody will be able to see it here, it is the quintessential picture of the last race at Lions because you can literally see the people all the way down the guardrail to the finish line standing at just incredible photograph to me. Yeah, as it turns out, that that uh, I've, I've seen that picture when you uh, when you sent it to me, uh, and interestingly enough, it was not the final. And there's a way that oh. I knew that right off the bat. It's probably the semifinal because those were the two rounds we ran in the left lane. Okay. The reason it wasn't, I know it wasn't the final is because the wing strut on the car is the original wing strut and not the bailing wire that Mike Cool had fastened the, the wing supports back together with after the car shook so hard in the semi that it, it broke the firewall and he had to drill holes in that and wire it to the chassis with bailing wire. And the, oh. it had also broken the stay rod on the rear wing and he just ran couple of loops of three or four loops of bailing wire and off we went you know so i was i was about half sure that that when the parachute came out at, on the final that uh, that uh, donovan 417 was going to hit me in the back and, and <laughs> the grace of god uh, everything stayed in place but that's the only way that i was able to to definitively recognize that that couldn't have been the final okay because everything was in real good shape at that time. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, it wasn't. <laughs> well, and to, before we move on, this will be the last part of this with, with Lions. You described to me at one point that, uh, you know, that you, you guys fired the cars up on the rollers out there, the spinners. Uh, yes. you didn't, you didn't have a, a starting motor like they do today. Um, so you're on the spinners and literally there's so many drunk people around that you don't even know if you can get to the starting line during that final. True story. <laughs> that's yeah. incredible to me yeah and i remember as as we were getting ready for the rollers to start turning over seeing larry sutton and his assistant starting line crew and of course there was no security because they saw what was happening and they they were long gone man. there wasn't a <laughs> uniform security officer or police officer anywhere on the premises i think everybody said we want to be as far from what's happening there as we can possibly get but the Lions track crew managed to part the sea and, and force the, the spectators and drunks back enough to where now I could see the starting line, the Christmas tree. They, we fired the cars and, and pulled off and made the burnouts. And by the time I backed up, they had everybody back behind Larry Sutton. Um, but that didn't account for the people who were sitting on the guardrail down at the thousand foot mark. You know? and, and I distinctly remember saying to myself when I looked out there as I was getting ready to go up to three stage, I'm going to want to stay as close to the center as the track as possible because I don't want to be responsible for somebody's death, you know. And the way some of those people were acting, I wouldn't have been surprised if somebody ran right out in front of me. I mean, it was just nuts. It was crazy. Fortunately, you know, we got through that that night without, to the best of my knowledge, nobody went to the hospital that night. And to be honest with you, that, that in itself is a miracle. Yeah. Well, and I don't know why I feel such a connection to that race. You know, I grew up at a local drag strip here. You said you were there at one time uh, on business, uh, Great Lakes Dragway here in Union Grove, Wisconsin. And to me, 
that when I see pictures of lions, it gives me that same feeling of being at, at my hometown track here in the seventies. Maybe that's the connection, but it just feels like good old fashioned drag racing to me when I see the pictures of that. And it was, it, you know, I think in an earlier feature, you had mentioned that that, that event was kind of a dividing line yeah. in cultures, Yes, not yes. just drag racing cultures, but all kinds of cultures. And, and I have to agree with you. Uh, December 1972 uh, was the end of an era. Yes. And and certainly I, I think that uh, the closing of Lions Drag Strip, the last drag race, put an exclamation mark on that ending. Yeah. And, and of course, from there, we moved into a, a, a different world uh, and and carried on. You know, to, to let you know how important Lions was to me, the first drag race I ever attended was at Lions Drag Strip in 1957. Oh. So pretty much continuously from 1957 through 1972, I was at Lions Drag Strip. Every time they opened the gates, if I wasn't doing something else, uh, that's the kind of connection that I had with the place. I watched my first drag racing hero, uh, you know, crashed to his death in the Albertson Olds. Leonard Harris was a machine as a driver. I mean, he was absolutely phenomenal. He was a gymnast. And as a result, he had great feel for the car. And uh, driving that Albertson Olds car tuned by Gene Adams during that period of time, late 1950s, that I was going to Lions every weekend, before the fuel ban was over and they got nitromethane back there, uh, that top gas dragster not only won almost every race at Lions, they, they dragged it back uh, to the NHRA Nationals and won that. I mean, it was unbeatable. Yeah. Uh, and I happened to be at Lions the night that uh, the Albertson Olds was supposed to uh, race against Jack Chrisman and the Howard Cam Special uh, for number one on the Drag News Mr. Eliminator list. Big deal, big deal. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, one of the cars had a mechanical problem. And they had to postpone the match race, the two out of three match race. Uh, and uh, somebody asked Leonard Harris to just make a test run in a new car that they had that they were having real difficulties with handling problems in particular. And they'd gone through two or three drivers trying to get the car down the track. And they were just looking for somebody that was really good to make a run to tell them what was wrong with the car and how they could fix it. Uh, well, I was at the finish line standing on the top of an abandoned hot dog stand, which was a great vantage point, absolutely the best in the place as far as I was concerned. Uh, and uh, he ended up running against Quincy Automotive Car, which was a dual engine Chevrolet with a front line supercharger, kind of a weird uh, thing. And, and they were making test runs trying to get this combination down. And as the cars went by me, uh, I saw a quick flash out of the corner of my eye and, and concentrated my vision on the car in the left lane, which was Leonard Harris. And uh, he was having a huge crash. There were parts flying in the air everywhere. There was a piece of chain link fence that got wrapped up and shredded up all kinds of stuff and went out into a plowed field next to the return road. And when the dust settled and I looked over there to see what was left, I said, I don't think that was a survivable crash. And I drove oh. home the next morning. I got up and, and uh, read the newspaper and sure enough, uh, he had passed away on that pass. 
well, for a sh short period of time, I have to admit to having second thoughts about driving dragsters just because that crash had been so violent and had involved uh, my number one hero, drag racing driver in the world. I thought, man, I don't know. Just, you know, and he wasn't the only one losing his life at Lions and other places. It was a very dangerous time in drag racing. Well, I got over that real quick. Uh, and and uh, my passion after a couple of weeks was rekindled. And I, you know, I was back at Lions every Saturday night, whatever. And followed up by seeing the dragster in the garage in San Pedro and my involvement with the Steckers and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, to try to explain to anybody, not necessarily just the last drag race, but Lions drag strip in, in general, in the full perspective, is almost impossible to do because so much of it is emotional. Yeah. Uh, the fact that every drag racer, you know, that ever thought he was anybody that came west to race the, the Southern California hot shoes would end up at Lions more often than not. It was just a, a fact of life. I was so used to going out there and here's Conrad Coletta with his bounty hunter. You know, wow, I read about him and, and, and Art Malone and, you know, all of these guys that would come from back east and, and down in the southeast and the Midwest and come out to Lions. That's the place they wanted to go. And those are the races they wanted to win because it was, frankly, the epicenter of drag racing at that time. Yeah. Well, with 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 regard to the the people that lost their lives in the sport at that point, I I, I don't in my own mind I wasn't alive for I was alive but I didn't see any of that stuff. Um, but to me, it it always seemed to me that in everything where you're pioneering something, and let's face it, these were pioneers of the sport there's always risk like that. And, and were, were, you, were all of them willing to take that risk, I guess, is the question. It seemed, did you guys all think you were invincible teenagers or uh, uh, young men? I mean, I, I remember being 22 years old and thinking I could take on the world. Was that the attitude? I think it, in general, probably yes. In my personal case, absolutely not. Okay. Uh, I had seen too much. You know, my, my first love of motorsports wasn't drag racing. It was oval track racing. Like I had mentioned, uh, at the age of three, I became hooked on open wheel dirt oval racing, midget sprint cars, dirt champ cars, all of that kind of stuff. Those people were getting killed all the time. Yeah. You know, they were driving open cockpit vehicles with no roll cages. Most of them didn't even have a roll bar. And so... Most of my racing heroes at that time were oval racing all the way up to Indianapolis 500 type guys and, and fatalities were just a routine thing at that time. So I was well aware. And from my personal perspective, I knew all along that driving a race car was a calculated risk. It was a risk that I was willing to take as long as I felt the odds were on my side. And that meant I had to be directly involved in every car I ever drove. I wasn't going to go just leap into somebody's hot rod, make a lap like Leonard Harris did. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever was the very latest, greatest safety equipment, fire suits, seat belts, helmets, restraint devices. I was usually for, for a long period of time uh, when I lived in Torrance there. 
um, I was Bill Simpson's test dummy. You know, Simpson safety products were in Torrance at that time, not far from my house. So I would go over there on a pretty regular basis and visit with him and his general manager, a guy named Fred Crow, a wonderful friend of mine. Uh, and they would always say, hey, I'm coming up with this new fire suit material. What's the chances of you wearing one of these? You know, well, take my measurements and make it up and I'll come by and pick it up and, we'll, and I'll let you know, you know. Um, and so I always had access to the very latest, greatest. And even if I hadn't had ready access to it, I would have sought it out because I understood that the calculated risk only gets better when you look after all of those details. And I was never afraid of being killed in a race car. I acknowledge that it was a distinct possibility. My concern was being maimed or worse yet burned. Uh, and I had real close personal friends like Herm Peterson, you know, who were horribly injured and disfigured. And, and uh, I almost rather would have rather lost my life than had that kind of a situation befall upon me. Uh, and to be honest with you, it was only a fleeting thought from time to time. Gee, I hope this thing doesn't maim me. But, it, you know, I have literally sat in the cockpit of a car to be the next one down the fire up road when a guy crashed in the guardrail right next to me and, and was either killed or lost some limbs or, you know, whatever. Get out of the car, you know, drink a Coke, wait till they clean up the mess, get back in the car and make you qualifying. Run. It's just race car drivers are like that. And I, and I don't think I was alone in that regard. You know, when it comes time to perform, that is your sole focus period and everything else goes away. I might think about the crash that I just observed on the way home that night, but I never thought about it while I was getting ready to get in the car. I was only thinking about, you know, as time passes, maybe track conditions are going to change. We might have to change the tune up a little bit here or whatever. And depending on how long it is, those, those are the thought presses that were going through my mind, not the mess that was being carted away in the ambulance, you know. Yeah. And I, I don't think I'm all that unusual in that regard, to be honest. Well, and, and here's another observation that I had, and then we'll, we'll talk about the 73 season. But it, I, it, it's that mentality, in my opinion, that caused so much success uh, there, drag racing, like a lot of motorsports, but drag racing is my passion. Drag racing, I cannot believe the amount of successful people that came out in all aspects of drag racing, and I think it's that that attitude that that caused that to happen. And it's it's a unique attitude at that time period. I don't think we see attitudes like that today. I have to unfortunately agree with you. <clears throat> the uh, the level of commitment yeah. required to start with nothing, zero, yep. and build it to the top echelon of any motorsport is an arduous task, to say the very least. And it requires a great deal of work, concentration, um, pretty much put aside uh, a new car to drive or a new house or a new suit of clothes or even a new pair of jeans, you know, uh, because race car needs parts you know it eats parts and spits them out like crazy but i have to agree with you about the attitudes of, of most race car drivers and, and i will insert in here something that i'm always reminded of when this kind of a of a subject comes up about 
not just drag racing, but motorsports in general. You know, who is out of their mind enough to think this is a good idea to drive this thing, you know? And, and I would say to Cool, man, did you see that heap of junk those guys brought in here last week? And, and God, who would ever drive that? And he said to me something I'll never forget as long as I live. He said, Olson, because that he never called me Carl, and I never called him Mike. I was Olson. He was cool. He said, Olson, name me one vehicle of any kind, airplane, boat, car, rocket ship that has ever sat idle for lack of finding somebody to drive. Name me one. I couldn't. Somebody is always willing to raise their hand. You know, I always think of my good friend, Harry Hibble, hand grenade Harry. He was a ride whore. I mean, I'm sorry to put it that way, but that's what he was. He was a ride whore. If somebody had something and, and they needed somebody to drive it who was absolutely fearless and they knew wouldn't say no, they'd call Harry Hibbler, you know? <laughs> uh, and he was just one of, of many. And, and, you know, I drove other top fuel cars as well, front motor cars, rear engine cars from time to time. Uh, but I was always very well aware of how they were put together and I was involved in the, the mechanical aspect of it to the extent that I knew I wasn't climbing in a death machine, or I didn't think that I was anyway. And anytime somebody would show up with something unusual at the racetrack, go, ah, who in the hell would drive a thing like that? I always thought of Mike Cool. Maybe <laughs> one. Thing, you know? I'm reminded of things like videos that I saw years ago of some guy that had put a, a, a solid propellant rocket in a, like a Dodge charger and took it out to the desert and stuffed it into the side of a mountain, you know, who would do that? You know, <laughs> EJ Potter, the, the Michigan madman, uh, you know, with a small block injected Chevrolet and a motorcycle and, and, and Captain Jack McClure in his, in his rocket powered go-kart. I mean, <laughs> to this day, to this day, Randy, I have never been able to come up with a single vehicle of any kind that's kind of out there that sat idle because nobody was willing to, to stand up and, and drive it. And, and, and it's a, a point that Mike made that I'll, I will never forget. That's a great quote. You know, speaking of rocket powered go-karts, uh, I, the first drag race I ever went to was at a little drag strip, uh, Wisconsin International Raceway in Kakana, Wisconsin. And there was a guy doing an exhibition run there by the name of George Levine. And he had a rocket powered go-kart. And the first race I'm all of, I think I was seven years old. This guy takes it headlong into the guardrail. I remember my dad putting his hand over my eyes so I couldn't witness what was going on. But that happened at a race where there was 12 funny cars there doing match races that night. And that was the night that I was hooked forever by the smell, the sound, the crappy wooden bleachers, the, the crappy lights on the track. It was just the whole feeling. Uh, and I understood implicitly as a seven-year-old that this is something I want to hang around. Uh, I didn't had no ability or no means to go racing or be even a participant of any kind in my life, but I knew I wanted to be around that scene. Yeah. Thankfully, you and a lot of other people during those years. We finished up the 72 season with the amazing race at Lions, but racing continued on into 73 for you and Cool. Um, and, you know, I, I saw some video. This is a period of time for you guys where 
you're starting to get some real press and some ink. And I saw videos with you, one where you're describing how you drive the car uh, and you were in a couple of different movies that were made in the period um, and a great period of time for you guys. Talk about 73 and how that season progressed for you. Yeah. Uh, after the last drag race at, at Lions um, during the off season, uh, we had Tom Hanna finish the body panels and, and whatever. <clears throat> and we took the car apart and painted everything and polished everything and got it all zippy again. Uh, Cerny and Nat did the paint and lettering did a, in fact, that car, what we refer to as our 73 car, was always Mike and my favorite because it just had a clean design, red, white, and blue, with a little bit of psychedelics down the paint, you know, the nose panel or whatever, but <clears throat> just a gorgeous car. Uh, Cerny and Nat were right at the top of their game at that time. And I could go into what it took to get them to paint a car because they being they're artists, you know, uh, and they live in a different world, a different reality, you might say. And so, you know, getting them to paint your car and letter it involved a lot of late nights in their shop, making sure they don't escape uh, <laughs> and uh, keeping them motivated and whatever. And uh, there was a period of time when I was still at Transdap when um, Mike Cool would take the, the day shift because he could do his engine work at night uh, I'd work at Transdap during the day, come home, change clothes, drive out to Norco, which wasn't just right around the corner, to Cerny's shop, relieve cool. He'd go back to his shop, start building engines, and I'd sit with Cerny and Matt as long as I could keep them there and focused. And uh, eventually, it all got done. And the result was just an absolutely gorgeous race car. Just, I mean, and to this day, I wish I had it because, it, you know, it was my favorite race car of all time. Um, we ran the winter nationals with that car, um, and did okay. <clears throat> it was a really unusual year in 73 when they ground the track and there was no traction and everybody took their two speed transmissions out and went direct drive with a soft clutch and everybody's tune up was on. This is a, it was a pretty miserable event to be honest with you. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> but we got through it, uh, went to Bakersfield, went a few rounds there, um, and by now, we're committed to running pretty much locally and a few NHRA national events, in particular, uh, Winter Nationals, Gator Nationals in Gainesville, Florida, Spring Nationals in Columbus, Ohio, and U.S. Nationals in Indianapolis. Um, and we went to all of those races in 73 and, and did really well. Uh, we were runner-up uh, to Chippewood All at the Spring Nationals. Oh, and we ran the Summer Nationals in Englishtown as well. Okay. Um, so we ran those national events, but the rest of the time we were strictly local. And at some point, Ravel Model Corporation, Ravel Toy Company, was really heavy into models of race cars and hot rods. <coughs> Excuse me. And they were forming the Ravel Drag Racing Team. Uh, and they had Jungle Jim Lieberman and Jeb Allen and, you know, a bunch of really good high profile cars and the deal that they would put you on was not necessarily a lot of cash but uh they would give you a percentage of the sales of any models of your car uh and turned out to be the biggest sponsorship that mike and i ever had uh, we signed right up on the program but part of the program was that their art department 
exercise their option to design the paint scheme for the car. And I think probably the direction to the art department was make this paint scheme so unique that it will stand out wherever it is. Um, and so the art department kicked out this thing and it was a bright yellow paint scheme with some red, white, and blue stripes. And I mean, to be honest with you, it was just butt ugly. It really was. Cool <laughs> uh, called it the big banana from Santa Ana. And on. And everywhere we went, oh yeah, there's the big banana from Santa Ana. You know? uh, <clears throat> money talks. And uh, certainly the trade-off between aesthetics and cash was was not a hard decision to make. And uh, it was a really good deal. And they also helped to raise the awareness of our car because when you've got a model out there and they're they're hyping it, advertising it, it's kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, it's it's good ink and it's, it's good for everything that you do, particularly with your product sponsors, which were the majority of sponsors at that time. Was or, it Ravel that I, came up with the fast guys? You know who came up with the fast guys? No. Nat Quick. Really? Let me tell you how it happened. We'll digress just a little bit, but it's a great story. Oh, uh, sure. When they were painting our 1972 car, our first rear engine car, with that really psychedelic paint job, all kinds of different colors and wavy things and uh, a really distinct paint scheme to say the least uh, i think their imaginations just went a little wild on them on that deal <laughs> but when it came time for nat to letter it in gold leaf letters down the nose piece starting just below the cowl on the windshield and all the way down pretty much to the front axle in gold leaf in real fancy lettering scroll type lettering he wrote duh da fast guys and it was so exotic with the typeface and everything that you really couldn't read it unless first you recognized that there were actually letters there in the midst of this big psychedelic swirl of paint and then try to figure out exactly what those letters spelled out. And it, it was fun to watch people when we get to the racetrack and unload the car in the pits and people would be walking around and looking at it, taking pictures of every once in a while, somebody would, start looking at the nose piece and you'd see him. And then finally the light would come on. Oh yeah. The fast guys. So it was George Cerny and Matt quick that came up with that name. And they actually even put that on the 73 car when it was still in all aluminum. And you, yep. you will see it in the yep. pictures of the last drag race. Well, from that point on, you know, with the 72 car, there weren't that many people that figured out what it said, but then it became common knowledge. And from that point on, we were pretty much the fast guys. We didn't coin it. You know, those, those artists kind of guys, maybe in a little bit of a drug induced, <laughs> you know, just thought that would be a neat deal. And it turned out to be a really neat deal. And one that I'm really glad that happened because, it, it, you know, it's, it is something that, that I reflect back on with, with great pride, to be honest with you. And so being the fast guys already, when Ravel picked us up, that's how they promoted. Okay. Cool and Olsen to fast guys. And, and so that's pretty much what we became from that time on. Any idea where you can get that model these days? I have one in my garage. Oh. One. There you and go. I have one completed right over here on one of the shelves in my office. Okay. That was built by a professional 
model builder for Ravel to do photographs and things for their promotional materials and their box cover and whatever. Um, I actually went looking for one. I actually went I had one other. I had one other that I, that somebody had given to me a few years ago uh, in the original box with the cellophane wrapping on it and everything. And, and I was going to hold on to it, maybe give it to my grandkids or something. But when uh, a guy named Rick Lorenzen created something kind of called the Lions Drag Racing Museum or the Lions Drag Strip Museum, oh. part of the Lions Automobilia Foundation down just a few miles from where Lions Drag Strip used to be, part of his unbelievable collection of cars and memorabilia are some dioramas. And one of them is a model shop that has all kinds of car models from that era. And the one thing they didn't have is a model of the Poole and Olsen car in the box because they don't hardly exist anymore. And if they do, they seem to uh, generate a fairly substantial price tag. Uh, And so I just thought it would be important to provide Rick Lorenzen with that car for his model collection because it was, in fact, the car that won the last drag race at Lions, which is heavily featured in the museum, of course. Uh, So now I'm down to one complete one and and a nice little plastic box up there and one still in the package that uh, I hopefully will be able to give to my grandkids someday. Well, I went went searching for uh, the fast guy's Ravel model, and I... I could never track it down. I tracked down actually one of the jungle gym models. I paid $270 for it open package. And you can see the couple here behind me. Um, that was what I did when I was a kid. I put all these models together. So, you know, I don't think I ever had your model though, when I was a kid, but I went and tried to track all these models down. Let me tell you something, Carl, they cost a fortune to buy them now. Oh yeah. But especially if they're still in the original box. Oh yeah. It's cool stuff. And Uh, I know people that have them. Really, and and they they were, are never going to depart with them. Oh, absolutely! Ever. They're going to pass them down for generations or something. I don't yeah, know. Absolutely. So seventy three season is is you guys didn't actually run the entire NHRA circuit, did you? No. Okay. No, we ran Gator Nationals, uh, Winter Nationals, Gator Nationals, Spring Nationals, Summer Nationals, U.S. Nationals. Okay. Oh, and of course the World Finals. Okay. So we ran five of the eight. And so, and you're, you're in, you're in for the entire season. You guys were in the, the actual yellow banana from Santa Ana, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. With the Hillborn, with the dual, with the shotgun Hillborn injector on it. We're going to put a picture of that car up. Cause yeah. I, and actually, actually uh, the 73 car never had the shotgun. That oh, was the 74 car. Okay. 73 car had a standard Hillborn four port upright injector. Um, and some people confuse the two cars because they were painted identically. Yeah. But, uh, the, the 74 car was a whole different animal. And we'll talk about that later. The highlight of the season for us undoubtedly was the U S nationals. Yeah. Um, we towed that car back there. We qualified really well and we marched through eliminations and made it all the way to the final against Gary Beck, who had won the race a year earlier, had been running quicker than we had, throughout the entire event, but I felt that there was a likelihood or at least a distinct possibility that in the final, he might try to overpower the racetrack 
And I told him, cool, just set this thing up the way we've been running it. Uh, because I don't think we can run any quicker, to be honest with you. You're running teens and, and low 20s, uh, 620s, 16s. And uh, anyway, we went up there and staged and left. And he kind of pulled, I saw him pull out a little bit on me. And then he just immediately disappeared. And I knew he had smoked the tires. It's not my first rodeo. I've seen that before. Guy disappears that quick. He is either shut off or he's lost traction, you know. And, and for the next couple of seconds, I'm counting contingency money and wondering who the trophy girl is going to be this year. And, you know, I would say probably the 1,200 foot mark in the 1,320 foot drag strip, I saw his front wheel. And by the time we got to the ET light, he had gone by me and won the race. And I, I was gutted, absolutely gutted. Uh, I, I still chide myself to this day for assuming that I was about to win the biggest drag race on the planet. Uh, because all that did is create an even greater level of yeah. disappointment when it didn't happen. You know? uh, that's as close as we ever came to winning Indy. And, uh, and we only ran there one more year. And, and that's another story altogether. But we had a really good year. We ran, I mean, we ran well everywhere that we, we ran. Uh, we didn't win any national events, and we didn't run any IHRA events at all for okay. a number of reasons, um, some of them being safety-related, <clears throat> some of them being economic. I mean, we were their world champion in 1972, and they didn't really want to offer us a, a lot for the 73 season. After I crashed that car at Dallas uh, and was down at the end of the racetrack, the smoldering heap, uh, I waited for the ambulance in the emergency crew to get there and put out the fire. And uh, if I had needed rescuing, get me out of what was left of the car. I had already done that myself and waited and waited. And nothing ever showed up. Wow. Turns out they'd had some, some problems and transported both of their ambulances before the final round and decided, ah, what could possibly go wrong? We only have a couple more races to go. That put a real bad feeling in me. Uh, and I decided that I, I just wasn't willing to, between the economic issue and the safety issue, I, we just decided we don't need that. We're not going to go on tour anymore. We don't have to make a living with this car anymore. We're just running it for fun now. And, uh, and so we concentrated on NHRA where we knew safety standards were at the very top uh, rung of the ladder and where you knew everybody's getting paid the same round money you were and nobody was in on a guarantee and nobody got their choice of lanes if they didn't deserve it. And it was just a straight up deal. And it was never that way with IHRA or AHRA. There was always some hocus pocus involved in the mix. Uh, and we just didn't need that anymore. It, the, at the, at the U S nationals that year in 73, was that still a 32 car field yet at that point? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's amazing. I, I, all, all, yeah, that, that Gainesville spring nationals world finals, those were all 32 car shows. Yeah. That's it. I, I was never at a 32 car show like that. So for me, that's even hard to imagine. Everything was 16 car fields, but that had to be an amazing weekend. I know Mike couch has told me many times that the U S nationals working it. he said it was just a marathon for all the people that worked those races. Oh, absolutely. Racers and, and workers, uh, you know, the, the race is six days long uh, and a uh, lot happening all the time. Thousands, I mean, thousands of spectators, hundreds of cars, 
just a big deal. I mean, it was, in fact, the biggest race on the planet. And people sometimes ask, do you have any regrets in, in your racing career? You know, you quit earlier than anybody <clears throat> might have expected, at least the driving part of it. Uh, do you have any regrets at all? And my only regret is that I never won that race. Yeah. Came close. And, and, and that coming that tantalizingly close to winning and not is just a, a, creates a level of frustration that's hard to describe, you know. And then to go back the next year in 74 and be a first-round loser, it's just like, okay, this, this isn't going to happen. It's just not. So we get, you get through the 73 season, now we're on to 74. You're still in the seat at this point. Yes, there's, and you guys went back to the U S nationals in 74 and there's, there's a neat little story, um, about transport. If I remember right, Carl, is, is this transporting parts on you're, an airplane and you're a year off. I'm a year off. Said that was 73 to the U S nationals. The year we were runner up. Okay. What happened was, and I'll get through this as quickly as I can. I don't want to drag it out. What happened was I came out down with a really bad eye infection. It started as pink eye and then it turned into something worse. And the optometrist that I was going to or the ophthalmologist said, you cannot get on an airplane and fly because of the altitude pressure differences and whatever. Uh, and you have a serious infection in your eye and just going outdoors, you need to go home and get in a closet is what you need to do. You need to close all the blinds and, you know, you just need to let that heal. And he gave me some drops to put in and whatever. And, well, the next race that we were committed to was the PRO race at Tulsa, Oklahoma, which originally had been on top of the U.S. Nationals at Indy. And when that didn't work out well for either NHRA or the PRO, they moved it to a week in advance of the Nationals so that everybody coming from all over the country could run Tulsa and then go directly on to Indy. Well, the Tulsa race just happened to be right when I had this eye infection and, and we were committed to our sponsors to run that event. So we looked around for somebody to put in the car and we decided on Jeb Allen's brother, Les Allen, okay. uh, who also had driven uh, the family top fuel cars and junior fuel cars and whatever. And he'd driven some other cars and we figured he was probably about the the best guy we could put in for that one event. He ran the car there, and during one of the rounds of eliminations, he let the car drift off the left side of the track and got into the dirt uh, and started hitting chuck holes and bushes and things and ripped the front wheel, left front wheel off the car and, and bent the axle in half, and all the radius rods and all the steering members were junk. Didn't hurt the chassis, but it hurt everything else in the front end. And Cool called me, uh, and I was at home in a dark room, you know, answering the phone. And he said, uh, I got some good news and some bad news. Uh, well, what's that? Well, the car's still in one piece, kind of. <laughs> what do you mean, kind of? And what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is that Leslie ran off the track and bent a bunch of the stuff up. And so what you need to do is you need to call Woody Gilmore tomorrow morning, Monday morning, as soon as the shop opens up, and you need to tell him we need a new front axle, radius rods, cr steering cross members, 
this was rack and pinion steering, so there were no drag link or anything. But uh, and we need a left front wheel and a PNF spindle. And I'm like, Mike, you know the race is next weekend. What you know? What are you talking about? I don't. I'll do it. I'll call Woody, but I I, I got a pretty good idea what he's going to say. And so I did. I called Woody, and he said, "Look, I I'm sorry, man." I'm, you know, I'm up to here. I've got delivery schedules that are past due. I've got people all over me. I'm just not in a position to stop what I'm doing and rejig for building a front axle and all of that kind of stuff. He said, I'm sorry, Carl. I just can't help you with that. I just can't do it in two days. It's just not possible. And I said, I understand completely. You know, that's kind of what I expected, but I figured we'd run it up the flagpole and see what happens. So I hung up. And he called me back and he said, you know, I just thought of something. He said, I just delivered a complete chassis, virtually identical to yours, to a guy named George the Bushmaster Schreiber. And he lives in Long Beach, which is not far from you. And I don't think he's even put the car together yet. So my suggestion is give give the Bushmaster a call and, and see if maybe you can borrow those parts for a while. So thank you very much. I knew George had his phone number, called him up and he said, uh, I told him what the deal was and what we need, what parts we needed. He said, how soon can you be here? You know? And I said, 20 minutes, half hour. He said, okay. And I showed up a half hour later and he had all the parts piled in his driveway and we loaded them in my truck and and I drove home. Well, what am I going to do with this stuff now? too late to ship it you know there's no way i can box it up or do anything so i told cool what the deal was and he said just bring them all bring it all on the airplane with you i said what are you talking about he says you know you can't check it because it's (laughs) it's too big or whatever and he said just tape everything together and carry it on the airplane i said mike you know are you on psychedelics or something like that i mean you can't be serious. And he said, no, I, I'm, we have to have those parts if we're going to run this race. And this is the best chance we'll ever have of winning the, the U.S. Nationals. I said, okay, I'll give it a try. So I ended up taking a red-eye flight to Indy because I was still working at Waterman Racing Engines and all of that kind of stuff at that time. Uh, and so I showed up at Los Angeles International Airport at about 11 p.m. one night, like a, like a Wednesday night. Uh, and I had all this stuff with me and everybody looked at me really weird, but these were different times. There was no TSA security or, I mean, you bought a ticket, you parked your car, you walked across and you got on the airplane, you know? So I got my boarding pass. I didn't bring the stuff with me when I went up to the desk to get the boarding pass, but they started boarding passengers and I kind of waited down towards the tail end. And I finally picked this mess of tubing up and, uh, walked down the gangway onto the airplane, there was a flight attendant, a female flight attendant there. And when she saw me coming, she looked at me and she just started. And I went, uh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> I can see right away. This is not going to go well, but oh well. So I got to the door and she said, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what that is, but I can't allow you to bring it on this airplane. You know, I said, let me explain what this is. This, these are parts of a race car that are intended to go on our race car that we're going to run this weekend at the biggest drag race in the world in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I said, I know from watching the boarding of this plane that it's not even half full. And 
I have a, I know that I have a window seat with nobody next to me. And if I don't get these parts on this airplane, we're not going to be able to run this race, which is the most important race of the year for us. As it turns out, her husband was a hot water <laughs> and a race fan. She goes, you're going to the end of the nationals, huh? And I said, yeah. She goes, you will never tell anybody that I let you do this. Right? And I said, scouts honor. I don't even know your name. It's right. I know it's there on your tag, but I, I don't know it. And I and those that those words will never pass my lips. And I don't know. I'd hug and kiss you, but I'm kind of busy with all this crap. And so I'm going to get on the airplane and we're going to go to Indianapolis. And she smiled and laughed at me. And I walked on the plane and I ended up putting all that stuff next to the bulkhead under my seat and the one ahead of me fit in there just fine. No problem at all. I hate to think what would have happened if the plane would have crashed and it would have been flying around the cockpit, but <laughs> bottom line, you know, we flew all night, got to Indy and next morning, Mike cool picked me up at the airport and I said, here you go, big boy. Let's get to work. You know, and we did. went to the track, bolted all the new parts on and went racing. Wow. So we're, uh, into 1974 now, and um, Gilmore builds another new car for you, and you guys actually take that car out right away at the March meet, as I understand, and what, set low ET and low or high speed? It was our best weekend ever. There's a terminology that a, a lot of drag racers use, <clears throat> and it's called running the table. Number one qualifier, top speed, low ET, top eliminator. That was our weekend. Uh, you know, drag racing has always been one of those things where <clears throat> a lot of times you go to the track, you expect to whip everybody's butt and you don't. Yeah. And there's other times you go and you think, well, we might be competitive, but this problem and everything falls into place. This the 1974 Bakersfield March meet was one of those events where everything fell into place. We got a brand new state of the art Woody Gilmore car. We got a Donovan 417 with a 38 stroker in it, and uh, the new shotgun Hillborn injector, and a big rear wing, which we didn't have on the 73 car. Some better tires. The combination just was perfect. And uh, we unloaded and, and ran a low ET of qualifying. And we knew that we were going to be competitive. I, I, I hesitate to say we were looking forward to winning the event because. I never went to the track truly expecting to win, just expecting to do well, you know. And uh, what happened that year was that eliminations got rained out. And the event, the final elimination, Sunday eliminations were postponed for a week. So we had a whole week to salivate over the fact that we were low qualifier and Qualifying was over. There wasn't going to be any more qualifying. So we already knew who we were going to. And again, this is a 32-car show. And I mean, every badass in the country is there. <laughs> um, but we were reasonably confident that, that we were going to have a good outing the following weekend. And uh, we not only set low ET of every round, although I think I did get one whole shot victory against Frank Bradley. And, and those were always enjoyable for a driver <laughs> especially against guys like frank frank bradley <laughs> uh, but we uh during eliminations we ran the first five second run 
ever at Famoso. Uh, so we worked our way through eliminations, ran Tony Nancy in the final. Uh, he sprung a leak on his burnout and we made a single for the victory. And so on our way home, we were able to ruminate on the fact that we ran the table, low qualifier, low ET, top speed, top fuel eliminator, and the first car in the fives at Bakersfield and consequently membership in the Crager five second club to say it was a good outing would be a gross understatement. I mean, uh, I don't know that our feet settled back to the ground for a couple of weeks after that event. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really good one. Well, and you guys, you guys mainly stayed local than the rest that did you, you ran a few, a few NHRA events in 74. Yeah, we ran Gainesville. We ran Indy and we ran the finals. Okay. I think it was, I believe those were the only three national events we ran that year. And, it, you know, I, I'm thinking about 1974 reminds me of, of another one of one of my favorite people on the planet, which is Marvin Graham. Um, th- there's a whole story about heading to the, the 74 nationals too, that involves Marvin Graham. It's a great story. Would you mind telling us that? Not at all. That's a great story. <clears throat> Marvin was pretty much unknown at the time. Uh, he, he raced locally in Oklahoma, Texas, you know, that mid, uh, mid-south region of the country and never got that far from home. He had a television repair shop in Oklahoma City. Um, and so, you know, he had, had a wife and kids and mortgage, you know, like all of us did. And... Uh, because we ran so well with our Donovan, Mike Cool was called upon a great deal for advice. Um, and you might think it's crazy for a guy who probably is as knowledgeable about those engines as anybody on the planet sharing that information with the people you're going to race against. But that's the way Mike Cool was. Uh, in all the years we raced together, I marveled at how forthright and honest he was about our combination. I think his attitude may have been, I'm going to teach them everything they know, but not necessarily everything that I know. <laughs> that kind of a, a deal. He would answer their direct questions, but he wasn't going to send them a top to bottom list of every setup and the tune up or whatever. Um, he always, you know, kept something in his side pocket. Uh, but beside that, I mean, he, he was perfectly willing to help anybody that asked for it. Um, One thing I have to say about it is that while he was asked for and dispensed a great deal of advice and information, if somebody ignored that advice and did something else because somebody else told them to, or they thought it was a better idea, that's the last information they ever got from Mike Cool. But if they listened to him and did what he said, he'd bend over backwards to help him any way he could. And Marvin Graham was one of those guys. He ran a Donovan. He ran the BRC combination. Uh, He had a car that was very similar to ours. It wasn't a Woody car, but it it was very similar in its construction. And uh, because of the advice thing and the conversations that they had had, Mike Cool and Marvin Graham had developed a communicating relationship and Mike pretty much convinced Marvin Graham to do his complete 
combination, three eighths Velasco stroker crank, BRC rods and pistons, you know, 300 down, 200 down, whatever it was at the time, <clears throat> 671 Larkin blower, um, Hillborn injector or whatever, yada, yada, yada. And this camshaft for sure. And this magneto and these spark plugs. And so Marvin ordered all of those parts and uh, there wasn't a time for them to be gathered up and shipped off or shipped independently from all the different manufacturers. So he, Asked Mike Cool if he'd go around and collect all of this stuff and bring it with us, put it in our trailer, and stop in Oklahoma City on the way to Indy for the Nationals. Mike was only too happy to do that. <clears throat> uh, I didn't know Marvin all that well at that time. We'd had some minor conversations, but we certainly weren't close friends or anything like that. I just hadn't had that much. We hadn't had that much exposure to each other. He certainly knew who we were, and I knew he, who he was. Uh, but we stopped in Oklahoma city at his house where he had a little two car garage where he kept his whole racing operation, pretty typical of those days. Um, and we unloaded the parts in, in his garage and he was deathly ill with a bad case of probably the flu because he was sweating profusely, uh, horrible sore throat, you know, runny nose, eyes are watering. Maybe he looked like hell. In fact, he he wouldn't even come out from the house to the garage to help us unload the parts. That's how sick he was. He And, and when we did go to talk to him, uh, he said, guys, I really appreciate you doing this, but there's no way in the world that I'm going to be able to be in Indianapolis this weekend. It's just not going to happen. I'm way too sick. And I'll never forget Mike Cool saying, well, you weak suck. <laughs> You're what? Just because you got a case of the sniffles, you're not going to go to the biggest drag race of the year with all these new awesome parts? You are a weak suck. You got, you, you don't even deserve to call yourself a drag racer. <laughs> on the left. And I mean, I look at Marvin and his eyeballs are just, what did this guy just say to me? You know, I mean, he feels like crap anyway. But, oh, well, so anyway, I said, Mike, you pretty hard on that guy, weren't you? He says, you mark my words. He will be at Indy. I said, we just left him. I mean, he should be in a, in a hospital in, in the emergency room. You know, he said, that was called motivation. So, okay, well, we'll see about that. I'm totally unconvinced, right? Well, he wasn't there for the first day, which I think was a Thursday, but on Friday, Marvin Graham toes in with his race car, with his new Donovan 417, with all the whistles and bells. And to make a long story short, wins the race. Yep, wins the race. And the reaction to the drag racing world, when it was announced that Marvin Graham from Oklahoma City won the biggest drag race in the world, the reaction was, Marvin who? <laughs> <laughs> and to this day... It's, it's Marvin who, and uh, I'm, I'm curious, how, how did Mike take that happening? The fact that he helped out Marvin and Marvin ended up winning the race. How did Mike take that? He was thrilled for him. Was he? Okay, good. Yeah. Thrilled to the core. I think I had mentioned previously, <clears throat> we raced Grant Stoms from New Jersey in the first round. Yeah. Uh, and I had such horrible tire shake 
on the run that I aborted the run. And it's a good thing I did because we broke some frame rails in, in the chassis. Wow. And he went on and blew up an engine and the lights or whatever, but he won the first round. And, and that was the last run I ever made at the NHRA U.S. Nationals. So we were then stuck in the pits, drinking beer, commiserating with people the rest of the day on Monday, Labor Day. And the final round got rained out at that event. So they actually ran the final round on Tuesday morning in front of about 100 spectators. And we went out just because we now had this relationship with Marvin and we're really thrilled to see him in the final round. And we weren't exactly confident that he was going to win the race, but you know, you're in the final round. We know in drag racing, anything can happen. And he won. And uh, that pretty much cemented our relationship for all time. And to this day, Marvin Graham is one of my very closest personal friends in the world. I can't say that we go more than a couple of weeks without having a lengthy conversation about the good old days and, uh, and uh, reminisce on things like the 74 U.S. Nationals. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that you guys supported his effort after you guys went out in the first round. That's, and it, to me, something that I never understood about drag racers before I began, uh, you know, hanging out in this world was that it's just a fraternity. You, you guys were all wanting to kick each other's ass on a track, but at the end of the day, it was, let's have a beer together. I never understood that. Yeah, absolutely. That's particularly in that era. Yeah. That's the way it was. And, and to bring it forward, to come to an event like uh, the Nitro Revival, which I know you weren't there because you were off deep sea fishing, which we'll talk about that in just a second. I don't know anything about deep sea fishing, but I'm, I'm, I want to hear about that. But the <laughs> Nitro Revival, we, I, I did not see an unhappy face in that entire place. And I just marveled as I walked by and listened to these guys telling these stories. And I took a picture of Harry Hibbler sitting in the K and G speed associates dragster. And I, I actually put a quote underneath it. The fountain of youth has been found. It comes in a front engine dragster. He's got this <laughs> smile on his face. That is just incredible. Yeah. And to the, the fraternity that you guys have is what makes an event like that. So special. It was just amazing to be there. Yeah. It was that way then, and it has continued to be that way with those people ever since, and will be until we're all gone.